Episode 3, Moon vs. Mars. You're listening to SpexCast. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast for discussing the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and joining me today, we have Augie. Hello. TJ. Hi. And James. Hello. And Augie, what are we going to talk about today? Should humans build a permanent settlement on the moon or Mars first? So which one are we going to go to first? Yes. Permanently. Like a moon Set base. An establishment. Mars colony. Augie, let's hear it. What do you think? What's your viewpoint on this? So there's definitely a ton of pros and cons for both. Currently, NASA's plan calls for um, setting an establishment on Mars first, but that's 30-plus years away. And um, going to the moon, many people think, may offer an easier way to test our capabilities. And there's a 72-hour direct abort capability in case something goes wrong. So a lot of people think that if we had established something on the moon first, that would get us used to transporting people back and forth, something more difficult than the space station, um, and that would ultimately make Mars colonization and at least uh, even a scientific establishment a lot easier for Mars. So you're saying um, the SLS missions are just flybys of the moon, right? They're not. We're not establishing permanent. Um, Yep. Yep. stations. SLS is really just a rocket that is capable of eventually reaching Mars as they expand on its capabilities. That's kind of the idea. But the first missions only call call for a kind of cis lunar where they just do a moon flyby and then come back to Earth. And that'll be the first time that humans have been in that area of space um, that far out since the Apollo missions. And so do you think having a colony on Mars before we ever have a permanent colony on the moon, do you think that's beneficial? I mean, the moon can be a, a learning experience. I'll, I'll put my opinions later on because I have some differing opinions, but so, let me hear your story first. I mean, I'm of the opinion that ultimately we kind of have to colonize Mars, and that's the more important goal, is to um, set something up on Mars. And there's also a lot of reasons why Mars may, in fact, be easier than the moon. Um, one of those is that there's a stronger gravity. That's an easy one. Uh, Mars's gravity is... Um, a little more than three times less than Earth's gravity compared to the moon, which is basically a fifth of Earth's. It's 1.6 meters per second squared. Earth's is 9.8. And then there's an atmosphere in Mars, so this protects uh, our astronauts from space radiation uh, much better than the moon. And there's also uh, soil. And on the moon, there's regolith, which is essentially just Shards, basically like little shards of glass that get everywhere. They ruin equipment. They can get in the spacesuits. They can kind of penetrate anything we send up there to to Mars so the, or to the Moon. So those are just some of the things that lead us to believe that Mars, since it's the ultimate goal, should maybe just be the thing we try first instead of spending money on a side project where we may not gain a lot of the experiences and things that we think we'll need for Mars. Yeah. So... You mentioned using going to the moon as a learning experience, right? Anything we do in space, whether it be probes, manned missions, is a learning experience. It's whether we learn the skills and techniques and do the engineering required to achieve future goals. And that's where the case for going to the moon first kind of breaks down. Because, as Augie said, they're two very different environments, and there's techniques that you can use on Mars that are completely not applicable 
the moon. One of the key things for a Mars mission is using aerobraking. That's what we use for several of our probes, using a heat shield and parachutes to land st uh, stuff on the surface of Mars. You can't do it on the moon. It has to be completely rocket-propelled uh, landing. And so you actually use a lot more delta-v to land large amounts of mass on the moon than if you just used a large heat shield, parachutes, and then, with curiosity, a small bit of retropropulsion. So if we were required in order to land useful amounts of mass on Mars to master aerobraking, developing a full retropropulsion system on the moon, which is going to look very different to anything we sent to Mars because the moon has negligible atmosphere, those technologies and that development effort is going to be slightly wasted. So it's true that we're going to get experience, you know, with the algorithms and the other like engineering technology of but it's actually it's irrelevant. Exactly, a vehicle des well designed to land on the moon is not well designed to land on Mars. Right, and that is going to be basically doubling the effort of our engineers to build that equipment. Well, you know, I think going to the moon would be very beneficial because in the learning experience, we would be able to test um, types of space maneuvering. We would be able to make uh, certain uh, rocket-propelled ships that could go out into space and come back like a day journey. And I think that would be very beneficial because if we wanted to go to into orbit of Earth and then come back to the moon or the or the other way around, we could do that very easily. And then having the moon so close, relatively, um, <laughs> we could test that a lot easier. So you're saying forget the lander, I mean, for the learning experience would only apply to your interplanetary maneuvering and vehicles, right, but yeah. not necessarily a lander. No, because of because what TJ said. said. Right. right. Yeah, I think personally, and I hope you guys disagree, I don't think we should go to the moon at all. We've already been there. Um, all that's there is basically Earth stuff. It's pretty close, but if we're going to go to Mars, and if Mars is sort of the ultimate goal, and we get there, why bother with the moon? I mean, sure, there's some science you can do, and you can study magnetic fields because the moon has a... Does the moon have an active core? No? I don't think, I don't so. think so. Well, the, I'm pretty sure Mars doesn't either, and so its magnetic field is... Diminished. Yes. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, maybe even Mars wouldn't be the ultimate goal because it's not necessarily sustainable. One of the things that protects us from the elements of space is Earth's magnetic field and the robustness of Earth's atmosphere. So Mars has a lot of CO2. It, it's, the atmosphere is relatively thin. The water is... There, kinda frozen, right? But there, so it's going to be a lot of work to be a long-term sustainable habitat, right? And so the moon is going to be even more so. There's no atmosphere on the moon. There's no nothing you can plant in the soil. There's no atmosphere to convert into oxygen. There's what are you going to do there? <laughs> nothing. At best case for the moon, it's going to be something like the International Space Station, where you have a capsule, you'd have it underground to protect astronauts from radiation, and it would literally be 
probably just astronauts that apply through the government and, and fly there. And we have a limited number, maybe a dozen tops at any given time. And so the thing that's less compelling about that is uh, it doesn't set us off on the path to Mars. And you're right, it's, it's kind of like Mars is going to take a while to, to set up a colonization and go from that initial settlement to a full-on colonization that can kind of protect human consciousness in case something happens to Earth. Um, so... In that sense, I, I do actually agree with you. Now, I disagree with Augie on the usefulness of the moon as humans becoming spacefaring species. So right now, we're right at the cusp of being able to go out to other planets and the stars. Right? We've pretty much mastered low Earth orbit. We have all these satellites around our own planet. We've gone to our nearest moon, but we haven't really stretched out as humans to other planets yet. We haven't built that capability, that skill set. So I think going to Mars first is more important to build up that skill set. But in a hundred, a thousand years, when humans are on every planet in the solar system, the moon will actually have a pretty important role in that. How so? It is geographically close. It has a large amount of raw materials that we can harness. Like what? Iron? Silicon? Uh, iron, helium-3, which is supposed to be a very good fuel for fusion reactors, which is, again, a future technology. It also is outside of the Earth's gravity well. So anything we use using regular rocket technology has to climb out of Earth's very deep gravity well. Mars has a slightly shallower gravity well due to its lower surface gravity. The moon has a much shallower gravity well. So if you were to travel, say, interplanetary or even from outside the solar system, if you wanted to go to Earth, you'd park essentially at the moon and it would be a lot cheaper to do so than parking at Earth if you yeah, want to it, leave. It makes more sense for a ship in space to refuel and resupply at the moon and then go out to the solar system and then go all the way back to the Earth's surface. Now, that, again, involves a ton of infrastructure and a ton of future technology to be viable, but there's also other things that makes the, uh, the moon attractive. Uh, if you use rail guns, electromagnetically propelled carts, you can actually set up a rail gun on the moon and just using solar power send mass back to the earth so you like aim it at the earth then yeah you, you can literally, you can literally do that down. and that makes the cost of sending raw materials from the earth or from the moon to earth much much lower anything any raw materials from mars are going to be very cost prohibitive to send back because mars has a large gravity well relative to the moon it's much farther away so you need a lot more delta v to get back and so the raw material, looking from a raw materials perspective, the moon is valuable in that sense, but only once humans as a species have a much more robust capability, where we go and we should start looking at what raw materials are more easy to access instead of what locations are easier to access. Yeah, I, I like the moon as a kind of stepping stone. Uh, you start there, you develop your technology in space because of the no atmosphere. You really, you're really you in space all the time. Whereas on Mars, you've got something there. You've got something protecting you. But on the moon, we could develop our technology, master how to maneuver in space, and then go out and branch to other planets. Why develop on the moon, though? So here, here is what I think the ideal system would be, is to try it on an asteroid. And that's kind of what um, NASA has been um, 
you know, talking about as the third mission for the SLS is they're going to redirect an asteroid and then have astronauts go and uh, actually explore that asteroid and take back some of that asteroid rock back to Earth. And I think they should put way more emphasis on that because the Mars plans that are 30 years out aren't really getting anybody excited. It's just so far away and still there isn't a clear path to how they're going to do that that if they focus everything on this asteroid and really hype that up, that would actually get done. And we could do all those things that you're talking about, you know, space maneuvers, all these challenging things that we would learn from it. And we wouldn't have to deal with, you know, the moon dust and all that other stuff that isn't really helpful at this stage in space exploration. It may be later on when we need to, you know, like TJ was saying. But So when you say to uh, redirect an asteroid, do you mean into Earth's orbit or just enough that we can occupy it until it leaves our vicinity? So enough, so it already is orbiting. It would be enough for us to go to it and explore it. So it's much closer within SLS's range. We don't have to take astronauts way outside of, uh, you know, Earth's safe Sphere of influence. Yeah. Yes. Now, going on the technological development side of things, missions to the moon have a very unclear path of relation to missions to Mars. Now, you mentioned uh, mastering orbital maneuvers. Right. Pretty much the only similar orbital maneuvers between a Mars and moon mission would be that initial injection burn and mid-course burns. Okay. Because for a lot of the more popular plans... To go to the Mars, aerobraking is a key component that reduces your uh, required delta V by a ton because you can use the atmosphere as free deceleration. With the moon, you can't do that. So you have to do an orbital insertion burn and then a landing burn yeah. all in one. A lot of Mars plans, you just go direct, you do an aero capture or just an immediate re-entry, right? So those maneuvers are inherently different. They require different, different design vehicles. Also, another thing I want to talk about is in-situ resource utilization, ISRU. And that is using the resources in your environment to help support your mission. Now, with regards to Mars, the key uh, concept of this is using the Martian atmosphere to generate fuel for your return journey. And that changes the dynamic completely in your vehicle design. And that's why there's such a push for methalox engines, right? The exactly. There's methane. tons of methane on Mars. Exactly. So you can use the Easily methane mineable. So into fuel. for a Mars mission, instead of having to have a craft, instead of all the fuel you need to land and get back, as well as the fuel needed to land the fuel you need to get back, with that rocket equation coming in, making those that vehicle size gigantic, yep. you can land with just enough fuel to land with a reserve amount of hydrogen that acts as your feedstock. And you can turn that small amount of hydrogen, combine it with local resources into a large amount of methane, and use that methane to get back. With regards to the moon, there are, it is feasible to generate return fuel. There's water within the moon's rocks. We can get hydrogen and oxygen from that and send fuel out. And a lot of sci-fi authors use the moon as a refueling base, using the natural resources on the moon to fill out these large spaceships to go out to the solar system. However, it is not terribly easy to extract those materials. You need a very large amount of infrastructure and manpower and energy on the moon to remove that water from the, from the rocks. On Mars, all the elements you need are in the atmosphere. You can use a very on principle, simple machine and mechanically simple machine that uses a relatively much, much less energy than it takes to extract useful fuel from lunar rocks. 
and then use that fuel. So when new hardware is being like designed and you, you want to test it to its limits, right? So do you think that the moon is too far outside the regular use of that technology, the ISRE technology, to be a valuable test case? Like, um, it really depends on what kind of architecture you're looking at. So with the traditional NASA architecture, the grand plan, uh, I'm going to refer to the NASA's 90-day plan, which was created in the 90s under George H.W. Bush. And this was a plan to send humans to Mars. And he tasked all of NASA to generate this proposal. And their plan is one that we've kind of mentioned, where you build infrastructure in low Earth orbit that allows you to build large vessels. You right. build a base on the moon that lets you process raw materials into fuel, you send your ship to the moon, refuel, and then send that ship to Mars. So you build it, you build it like the, they built the space station almost, um, by bringing it up piece by piece, yep. assembling it mid-orbit, then sending it to the moon to refuel, then load it up with all the fuel, and then go to Mars? And that's the kind of engineering you need when you have to bring all your fuel for the trip and land and come back all at the same time, because that rocket equation just inflates the mass required by so much. For more modern proposals that use aero braking, you can and ISRU. Are you suggesting that they didn't use they didn't factor in aero braking at all? Yes, in, for, in that, for that proposal you would use chemical propulsion on both legs of the journey. The main ship would remain in orbit. It would do a capture burn and then send a small lander down and then back up. Okay, similar to the Apollo mission style yes. command module yes. and lander module. Uh, very similar to the Martian if you all seen that. The Martian is the pinnacle realization of this plan. I you see. build a huge ship that goes purely between Earth and Mars, mm -hmm. and then you use a smaller lander to go land on Mars and land back up. Okay. So that kind of seems like we could test that on the moon, because we did it with the Apollo missions. So if we wanted to commit to that plan for getting on and off of Mars, we could go to the moon, figure that plan out, execute it, figure out the flaws, solve the flaws, and then ultimately perform it going Wait, to Mars. You can't use aero braking if we're going to do... So I think TJ's point is that that plan was prohibitively expensive. It was going to be like $500 billion. So they ended up not doing that at all. And now with new technologies toward aero braking and in-situ resource utilization, um, we would want to use the newer stuff. So really, you can't test that on the moon because there is no atmosphere. You cannot... Aero break it but we can still test other things. Oh, certainly. And I, and I don't disagree that we there's nothing to learn on the moon. There's certainly things to learn on the moon. Anytime we do something new, there are plenty of things to learn. It's just a question of, for the money you spend, where will the most value be? Yeah. What if um, NASA and other world organizations split up that cost? Sure. And like maybe ESA sends things to the moon, NASA sends things to Mars, and... The Chinese, for example, send something to an asteroid. So that's exactly what's happening because the costs are so great. Under this, I'm going to call it the Battle Star Galactica plan, where you build a huge support ship that transfers you from the Earth to wherever you're going. Because the costs are so huge, with $300, 500000000000 billion for the total program, it's very difficult for one country to support that. And so NASA went out to other countries uh, countries looking for partners, but for all international programs, you gain that country's support, but by spreading out the design work between more partners, you increase the cost. Integration becomes a huge yes. challenge, as well yes. as the motives and um, what people want to gain from that experience, I guess, would differ based on political and social and cultural differences among uh, 
across the entire yeah. world. Yeah. Now, the key thing to look at is that with the Battlestar Galactica plan, the 90-day strategic plan, you're looking at 300 to 500 billion dollars for the total program to send humans to Mars for a non-permanent stay. We're not sending up a Martian colony. We're sending mm -hmm. humans to Mars for a limited mission. There's the alternate plan by Robert Zubrin, Mars Direct, where you use aerobraking, you use ISRU to refuel and come back. You're looking at a cost from 30 to 50 billion. So you're looking order at a magnitude huge, decrease. Exactly, an order of magnitude decrease in cost. And once you do that, then it becomes possible for a single government entity to achieve. I see. James, you were going to say something. Um, well, I was just going to say communication would probably eventually be difficult between all these countries, right? Because you have so many things going on in one country doing this one thing and then it's happening in multiple other countries having to get together and communicate everything they're, they're doing and the problems that's occurring and the solutions, you know, that's going to fill up. I'm not sure how much that would fa that factored into building the International Space Station, but do you think that that level of cooperation that we see on the ISS would scale up to a Mars colony, an international Mars colony? I mean, if you look at the ISS, yes, it's an international cooperation, but you have two main partners. You have the U.S. and the USSR and now Russia, who built the majority of the component, the major structural components. And you have, Japan has one module, Canada offered its robotic arm technology, and you, a couple other countries supported it via support missions and not actual components. And so it's really a combination of two large powers working together. Well, they, they, those two powers were the ones with the money, the, the exactly. knowledge, and the resources to do it. Exactly. And so when you're looking at a $500 billion price tag, the United States can't take $200 billion of that and have everyone else support the other $300 billion. Those numbers are just unreasonably large. But hold on, I'm a little confused. You're citing this $500 billion number, but that is under the old plan. Yes. Let's look at this right. from the perspective of the SLS and other modern initiatives. NASA wants to build a Mars colony. SpaceX wants to get to Mars. I'm not sure if they want to build a colony too, right? Yep. And that would be private, and that's a whole other ballgame. To just continue on with uh, Phil's point, SpaceX really wants to do the whole transportation part of it. They want to do, you know, the whole pay half a million dollars and we'll take you to Mars. So what they could do with NASA is NASA could be developing the technologies to help colonists on Mars and actually fund, you know, maybe a NASA settlement on Mars. Yeah, so going to the SpaceX plan, we know that they have a two-component system, the big Falcon rocket and the Mars Colonial Transporter. And that's designed to be fully reusable and dramatically reduce the cost of sending mass to Mars. And that's supposed to use the ISRU principle and air braking to reduce the needed vehicle mass that enters Martian. Sounds, sounds pretty gravity. similar to the NASA's mission and the ultimate goal. I mean, they are obviously running parallel paths right now. Now, NASA's current mission is currently a hybrid between Battlestar Galactica plan and the Mars Direct plan. And they want to do Phobos as well first. And, th and their real plan hasn't called for any necessary, like, sustainable establishment. I mean, that's really what we're talking about Who's here. Plan? NASA's, uh, NASA's plan. plan. So, so obviously we, we all want a permanent base. We don't just want to stop on Mars and come home. But currently NASA doesn't have, I guess, maybe the 
the budget or kind of the political willpower to put something like that together where we actually sustain ourselves on yeah. Mars. Now, going back to SpaceX, so we know that they have this rocket they're planning on building. Now, we're not going to know until September the details on that rocket. And the really big question is whether SpaceX is going to partner with NASA and be the sole transportation provider, or they're going to partner with their own com other commercial entities or burden that whole cost and develop all the necessary supplemental vehicles and technologies to do it all themselves. Because there's a huge payoff if they can create a complete Martian architecture, where they'll send you to Mars, they'll own the vehicles that you stay in on the surface of Mars. If they can control that entire chain, that is a huge potential income for them. But however, when you're looking at 30 to $50 billion for the entire program, it's very, very hard for a private company to support that kind of research and development. Is that even realistic for a private company to have its own complete mission from launch to landing and colonization from Earth to Mars? That doesn't, like, not to say, like, go for it, man, but I don't think that's feasible, and I don't think it should be one entity doing that. And that brings in the whole conversation of, is Mars international waters? Can it be monetized? Can it be claimed by a private company so who owns it? It wouldn't be that you're owning Mars, but if you own the means to get to this location, but you don't own the actual location, then you're getting much greater profit. You don't now, own the ocean, you own the ship. Exactly. So what about the moons of Mars? Are there is there any benefit to those? Yeah, there's Phobos and Deimos are two moons on Mars, and uh, NASA's current plan is to land on Phobos first, and that would test some of the orbital maneuvers you're talking about, the same of the ones that um, TJ's been talking about, and get us further from Earth than any human has ever gone before. Um, I don't, maybe you know a little bit more about that plan. Want to elaborate? Yeah, so... NASA came out with their journey to Mars pathway, right, of the steps it would take to land humans on Mars. And then there was a presentation by a group at NASA where instead of having this pathway lead to boots on the ground for a short duration mission to send humans to Phobos, one of Mars's moons, and basically land and maybe even set up a small base for a period of time on Phobos. Now, this has advantages in that you don't have to land and get off of Mars gravity well, but it has disadvantages where you can't use direct capture, where you're just using the atmosphere to completely slow down. This is sort of, it ties into the same argument we made for having a base on our own moon. It's basically the way we were looking at coming back from Mars and using the moon to refuel, except going to Mars and using Phobos to refuel and as a base of operations. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the way the NASA presented it is that certain elements of actual hardware would be developed and used for this. So the actual Mars lander would be developed and then used for Phobos. So it would be slightly over-engineered for Phobos, but they'd be able to use very similar hardware. And that way they could design the hardware, test it, and actually use it and get flight heritage on it before committing to a full Mars mission. How? What benefit does Phobos have over our own moon? What are the characteristics of Phobos? It's a, it appears in shape, kind of like a captured asteroid. It's not spherical um, like our moon is. Right. It's very, very oblong and elliptical almost. Um, if you look up pictures, they Phobos and Deimos actually look like two potatoes uh, wow. if you turn them gray. 
and I'm not sure on the size. They're pretty small. The service area is 1,500 kilometers squared. So, Does that help you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this kind of goes back to NASA's plan, or um, they want to put uh, astronauts on asteroids, right? So if they did that, they could, instead of going to the moon, go to the asteroid, right. they could test their techniques on the asteroid and then apply that to Phobos. I think the asteroid makes the most sense. I mean, Phobos has a gravity of only 0. 0.0057 meters per second squared, so it's far less than the moon. So oh. I don't necessarily see the benefit of going to Phobos first. I would rather they focus all their energy on going to an asteroid and saying, hey, look, in the public, you know, wow, look at what NASA's done and everything, getting people excited about it, and then set their eyes on Mars and set it on establishing a permanent base. And and that would skip the whole moon completely. Um, speaking about hype, do you think that going to the moon is uh, on the table because it's what gets Congress excited? Going back to the moon, you mean? Like our moon? Yes. I, I don't see... So there's people talking about it, obviously, but I don't see the same level of excitement. We've already done it in the 60s, and to do it again without anything significantly different or significantly beneficial to doing something in addition, or it, it to me, does not seem worth it. Yeah, like any small-scale moon mission doesn't show any breathtaking strides forward. Going for the asteroid definitely shows more capability going towards Mars. After we land on the moon, everyone was looking towards Mars. Venus is not a nice place to go. Mars is the obvious next target. What about this? I had this idea a couple days ago, and I'm sure it's not original, but what if we sent all of the equipment and all the colonization and all of the infrastructure to Mars in unmanned missions and then just sent the people afterwards maybe in a capsule or... You should, and I mean, most of the plans call for that. Um, I know SpaceX's plan, I think, is 10 to 1, so they'll send 10 ships for every one human ship and have robotics set up kind of the settlement and what they can do beforehand. Um, and, and NASA's plan, while they haven't released a whole lot of details on it, seems to lead to something similar where you want to have a ton of robotics going on in the beginning and, you know, setting up a landing site, something like that, so it's much easier for humans once they get there. Yeah, but there is a lot of risk in sending unmanned uh, probes because if something goes wrong, uh, there's not going to be anything to fix it. Right? Right. As much as risking a human life. Exactly. So it's actually a risk mitigation effort because... If you send all the supplies you need and they all land successfully before you send the humans, you basically guarantee that once the humans get there, they'll have everything they need. So there's always the inherent risk of something going wrong on the vessel as it's going to Mars, which you can only mitigate through design and testing. But the risk of your ship going and like you having a failure and you lose six months of food, right? If you know that you have all the food you need for your stay on Mars and your return trip on Mars already ready to go, then it's pretty much guaranteed because you can assume not much is going to change on the Mars surface. I think I can give a, an example that's a little bit more clear in, in that respect is that one of the things that they have on Mars is deuterium, and that can be used for, for fusion reactors. There's like five times more deuterium on Mars than there is on Earth. And so what we could do is we could send that fusion reactor in advance and start mining the deuterium all with robotics. And then if that ended up breaking, we would have time to send one again before we sent the humans. We'd have redundant systems already there before the humans arrived. So it's kind of like practice. 
it's, 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 practice, it's practice as well. We get practice landing, setting up, and right. it's it's risk mitigation, like yeah. TJ said, where if something goes wrong, humans aren't there to take the fall for it. You just lose some kind of machinery that you have to expend the money to send again. The benefits to going to the moon in the near term um, that you mentioned, James, are they're significant in some respects, but do they necessarily require humans to be on board? Do we? Do you think it would be more practical to send unmanned missions to the moon, or do you think humans should go to the moon in the near future, maybe in the next 30 years? Well, I think it depends on what what's going on in technology, what's going on in science. If there's a big call for something that could go to the moon, like a huge gravitational wave observatory if if you know gravitational wave of astronomy goes really big and gets everybody into it then they're going to probably want to put one on the moon where there's almost no vibration from the earth and it's very clear um maybe a telescope but i think that unmanned missions to the moon uh sound good because of our advanced technology and robotics can you think of any mission that would be necessary to put People on the moon? Um, A return mission for more moon rocks? So, yeah, maybe. Manned missions have a much higher rate of data collection. So we sent Curiosity and previous two, three other rovers to Mars. The amount of data they can collect is much, much slower than a human there. However, the cost and support infrastructure for sending a human to another planet is much greater. And so for a bang-for-your-buck kind of situation, rovers are great for doing a lot of science, but humans on the ground who can use multiple different tools and do analysis on location are much, much more effective. But it's all about balancing cost versus speed, really. So where, where are everyone's thoughts right now? I mean, we maybe should have done this at the beginning of the podcast and then discussed at the end, but um, moon or Mars, uh, or asteroid, moon or Mars. You want to start first, TJ? Go big on Mars. Uh, you know, I really like the space approach. A big, build a huge rocket, send it straight to Mars, land, fill her back up, and fly her back again. That seems like a very sensible approach. It just has that huge scope. When you're looking at a rocket that's much taller than a Saturn V, that's very hard for humans to fathom. Well, it gets complicated because if we had to choose one, I would say the moon. Because I I like the idea of it being close and it's uh, we can see it in Mars you know it's very far away compared to the moon so I think we shouldn't just look over the moon we should do some experimenting with it because you know our technology is getting very very good We're, we could probably get people back and forth from the moon very easily in a few years and I don't think that should be overlooked just because Mars has a lot of um, natural resources and they can do a lot more there of course we should do that but that's long term that's like 30 40 years away whereas the moon we could be going out to the moon in five years coming back very easily so at the beginning of this podcast i was kind of firmly believing we should go to mars and anything that we could do on the moon could be done on mars or on an asteroid so there's no point going back to the moon but after hearing what you just said, James, you got me thinking that maybe if we focus everything on going to the moon as basically an extension of things we already do on Earth, like giant radio telescopes or gravitational wave detectors or um, things that require 
like gravity. Maybe if we focus our efforts on getting uh, a single stage to orbit a rocket or space plane that can travel easily from the Earth to the moon, and if we focus everything on doing everything on the moon and get really good at it, it would speed up going to Mars, going to Europa, going to Titan, going to Pluto, um, much faster than if we just went to Mars. And I'm not sure, if I was the head of NASA and I had to choose the moon or Mars, I think I would still pick Mars, but I'm not as sure anymore. What about you, Abby? Uh, if I could pick, I think I'd choose an asteroid, and that's for NASA. So what they can do is spend the next five to ten years just reaching asteroids. So we can put humans on asteroids, we can study those, and at the same time, they can continue to help the commercial sector grow and expand and, and get new revenue streams and stuff like that. And then when their asteroid is kind of, you know, accomplished, they can focus on a commercial partnership with putting humans on Mars. That's what I think... So could we go from the moon to an asteroid and then to Mars? Would that Does that sound like a logical plan? I mean, we could, but uh, like you said, there would need to be some sort of discovery or some reason to go back to the moon, and I really don't see it. I think we could gain a lot of those same experiences by going to an asteroid, and I think an asteroid is equally, if not more, exciting because we've never done it. Well, an asteroid is very exciting, but for observatories like a huge telescope or a huge gravitational wave observatory, those those are very big instruments. Yeah, right, but if, what I'm saying is if that gets built, then yes, let, let's send one to the moon, certainly, but right now there isn't that compelling reason to go to the moon, you know what I mean? Okay. And that concludes episode three, Moon versus Mars. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this discussion or have requests for another topic, send an email to specscast at gmail.com or tweet to us at RITSpecs with the hashtag specscast. If you want to hear more, consider subscribing to us through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. All past episodes are available to download from our website, wiki.rit.edu slash display slash specs slash specscast. I know, it's a mouthful. This podcast is made possible by RIT Specs, a space exploration student faculty research organization at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Special thanks to the Interactive Learning Grant Program for giving us the tools to promote student and faculty engagement outside the classroom. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell. This has been SpecsCast. We'll see you next week.